my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I got offered three jobs that week, as a matter of fact. One was Time Magazine. The other was a guy named Rick Tonry, who had just been elected to Congress. And the third, rather weirdly, was a guy named Cord Meyer, ran counterintelligence in the CIA. I met with him, and he wanted to recruit me for the CIA. He made one mistake, though. He said, of course, we wouldn't want you to be a double agent or a spy. We'd want you to be an analyst at Langley, thinking that would make it more appealing. I thought, well, that's boring, and I accepted the job at time. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we explore marketing through the stories and lessons of those on the front lines. Before we jump in, I want to pause for just a second to congratulate our iHeart podcasting team. Although we've been the number one commercial podcaster for a while, we just passed NPR and became the number one overall podcaster in the month of August, according to PodTrack. We had over a 300% increase in audience last year, but I also want to congratulate NPR and companies like Wondery, who are also growing at a fast pace. 
and working together to build this new podcasting industry. Podcasting is probably the hottest new medium, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Now, back to the fun stuff. Today, we have someone who has studied those great minds and people who've changed the world, as well as being a creative and business practitioner himself, Walter Isaacson. He is probably known as the greatest biographer of our times, and he has also had other important identities at other moments in time. Head of CNN, head of editorial at Time Magazine and Time Inc., head of the first efforts of a major media company to join the emerging internet revolution. He was into tech even as a kid in the days before geeks built apps and made millions. Back then, they were ham radio operators and built Heathkit Electronics with a soldering iron. He's the former head of the Aspen Institute, now professor at Tulane in his native New Orleans. He played jazz clarinet, and he might even know something about voodoo and the bayous of Louisiana. Let's welcome Walter. Good to be with you, Bob. After many years, let's tell our listeners, you and I go way back. Way back. We're going to get into your story, but first I want to do you in 60 seconds, if you don't mind. Just say the first thing that comes into your mind. So, do you prefer New York City or New Orleans? New Orleans for the food. Louis Armstrong or Dr. John? Louis Armstrong. (laughs) Early riser or night owl? I'm definitely a night owl. E-reader or paperback? E-reader. William Shakespeare or Tennessee Williams? Tennessee Williams. Tulane Green Wave or Harvard Crimson? Oh, Tulane Roll Wave. Beignet or Donut? Beignet. Why would you need the whole? <laughs> fiction or nonfiction? Alas, I read too much nonfiction. I probably should indulge in novels more. Po' Boy or Gumbo? Gumbo. Smartest person you know? Bill Gates. Childhood hero? Walker Percy, novelist from New Orleans area. Sure. First job? Writing for the Times-Picayune of New Orleans Police Headquarters, 5 a.m. to noon beat. Something you wish you had written. I wish I'd written a novel. I keep trying. You know my agent. She says, give it up, give it up. (laughs) Last vacation. With my daughter, we drove around France earlier in the summer. Favorite TV show. The PBS News Hour. (laughs) Favorite New Orleans jazz musician. Wynton Marsalis. Most prized possession. Some of the art I bought when I was a kid, when I could afford it. (laughs) Favorite book when you were a child? The Movie Goer by Walker Percy. Quote to live by? Steve Jobs is the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. (laughs) Okay, we're going to end it with this one. Who would write your biography? The only thing I desperately fear is that my daughter will write my biography (laughs) because she's a great writer. Okay, let's start off. Let's go back in time, no pun intended. You grew up in the 1950s and 60s in New Orleans. Can you paint the picture of what that felt like and looked like? Air conditioning had just come in. Well, the cool thing about air conditioning coming in is that my father, my uncle, and my granduncle had been engineers for ice making companies, and they figured out how to do industrial air conditioning for the department stores and movie theaters of New Orleans. So I got to watch them build air conditioning. And of course, it helped pay my way through college. Was that the 50s and 60s that they were air conditioning all these? Yeah, right after World War II, my dad and my uncles came home. We had a house, my brother still lives there, right near here on Napoleon Avenue. And they built a very long pool in order to test out, it was before Freon had been invented, to test out Air conditioning, you know, like cooling towers, but it was just this huge pool. And it was a swimming pool. Nobody had swimming pools back then, in-ground long swimming pools. It's not that deep. 
But we grew up with this weird swimming pool because our family was in the air conditioning business. You must have been very popular. I was particularly popular, and so was my brother, when our parents would go to Destin, Florida for the weekend. No, we don't feel like going to Florida. (laughs) So talk about back then, Louisiana politics, French Quarter, architecture, gumbo, Lake Pontchartrain. I remember that long bridge, the old bridge across the Pontchartrain. It was very scary. I'll tell you what I remember most that's most important is race desegregation was just happening. We lived in a very integrated neighborhood, Napoleon Avenue and Broadmoor, the house I told you about. I remember vividly the first time my cousin and I, we were walking through Audubon Park, and we were with a young African-American kid. You know, we were all about five or six. My cousin said, hey, let's go to the merry-go-round, the carousel. And then I remembered it had a sign, which I'd never figured out. I never thought about what does it mean? I remember a sign saying, white only. I mean, I just learned how to read. And it struck me at that moment, oh, I get it. They don't allow blacks into this park, which is a private park. I started saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Because I was embarrassed, but Alan insisted. I think all of us who grew up in that era in the South have that. I have my stories from Mississippi. When it sort of dawns on you what's going on. The, as you say, embarrassment. When we got a little bit older, I remember we led a group of kids, a big march of black and white kids together to reopen the pool. It was sort of my first little bit of activism. Any voodoo down here? You know, I love going to St. Louis Cemetery, and that's where Marie Laveau is buried. So you can always put a little cross on a grave, lay a little grigri, the dried bones, if you really have to cast a spell. Does it work? It's worked for me so far. I wouldn't be sitting here on a podcast with you if uh, the voodoo Grigory hadn't worked. So why do so many storytellers come out of the Deep South? Walker Percy, the guy I told you about, the novelist who was sort of a mentor, I never quite knew what he did. We would go over across Lake Pontchartrain to the Bogafalaya where he and his daughter, who was my age, all lived, and we'd go hunting or water skiing or searching for turtles. We always used to say, Ann, what does your daddy do? He's always on the dock drinking bourbon, eating hogshead cheese. She would say, well, he's a writer. I couldn't figure out what that meant. I knew you could be an engineer like my dad or a doctor or a fisherman, but writer. When I guess I was about 12, I read the moviegoer had just come out. I realized what that meant. So I asked Uncle Walker, Walker Percy, tell me, because you're trying to teach lessons. You're preaching some things in this book. Tell me what it's about. And he said, there are two types of people come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. And he said, for heaven's sake, be a storyteller. The world's got far <laughs> too many preachers. And so why do you think the South has so many storytellers versus other parts of the country? Maybe it's the bourbon. Maybe it's the fact that we lost and should have lost the Civil War. Maybe people sit on porches a lot. Alex Haley, who wrote Roots, somebody once asked him, said he was trying to give a speech or something. And he was scared. He didn't know how to begin. And Haley said, here's the six words you have to know. Let me tell you a story. Well, you know, it's funny. When I was growing up, I had uncles who would tell stories. And if you ask them a question, you get a long story. And the moral of the story was the answer to your question. Do you think in this new digitally connected world that goes on? Or is this storytelling a lost art? No, this is why podcasts are so important, why they're such a popular medium, and why they're a crucial medium for us to have now. Because of the past 25, 30 years in the digital age, we've lost the art of narrative. Paper is a good technology for narrative. You go page after page, you can't hop around. Likewise, linear television, linear movies, 
they're great for narrative. But digital media tends to be great for hopping around, making links, jumping to gather more information, following and charting your own course. It's interactive, which means you're not consuming a narrative. Now, that's fine. I love interactive media. I love being able to hunt and peck and figure out, you know, who the saints are going to be playing and hear all the opinions about it. But every now and then we need to get back to narrative and to storytelling. I think it started for me listening to This American Life right. was doing a podcast a long time ago. I said, wow, they're going to save the art of storytelling. Well, you know, what's interesting. Young people, teenagers, young adults are flocking to it, whereas people thought, oh, talk shows, that's for old people. And I think it's just turned everybody's understanding upside down. It has sort of the best of both worlds, meaning you get it on demand. You don't have to tune in at 9 right. p.m. On the other hand, it's a narrative. You have to go with the flow. So let's put you in context a little bit. You played with electronics as a kid, building Heath yeah. kits. You were a ham operator. Was it WA5JTP? Hey, very good. Yeah, in my basement of our house, WA5 John Thomas Peter. Is that what you said? Because yeah, I, I, yes. I still remember being a ham radio dude. Can you still use Morse code? Uh, no, no. But I had to learn it because if I remember correctly, boy, you're bringing back some memories here. You had to somehow or another pass a test in Morse code. I never got my operator's license because oh. I could never get my speed up on Morse code enough, and I gave up. Oh. So I appreciate how hard it is to do that. So let's do a factoid. Why are transistors better than vacuum tubes? Because vacuum tubes use a lot of electricity. They burn out. They're filaments. They're heated. And a transistor is a semiconductor. It's on a piece of silicon. When I was growing up, I remember early radios, and we'd have a 12-transistor radio, and you got a 24-transistor radio. And then you can make your own I radios. remember that. Yeah. They were talking about the more transistors, the better the, the more radio. more transistors, and I could hear WLS, which is this great station in, in, Chicago. in Chicago, where I could hear Dodger games. You know, that was my thing. I was a kid. We'd solder the transistors onto a circuit board, but what happens with Bob Moore and others at Intel is they figure out, oh, we can etch these on a chip of silicon. You could never etch a vacuum tube right. on a chip. So where did that builder's love come from? Engineering dad or did it come from somewhere else? Yeah, I think it came from having an engineering dad. We all learn at the knees of our parents. I'm just old enough to remember having my earliest computers where you could open them up, you could jack in, you could put more memory. You knew how the insides were. I think you get alienated from your technology if you have no clue what a circuit is. If you have no clue how a logical algorithm that has yes-no, yes-no answers gets translated into on-off switches, which are basically transistors, on a circuit board in order to make something happen. No kid in my Tulane class today has any clue what goes on inside of the computer. They don't even know what digital really means, which is just an on-off switch type circuits. Do you think young people should all know coding? People say you got to learn how to code as a kid so you can get a job 10 years from now. No, you need to know how to think in algorithms. 10 years from now, machines are going to code for right, us. You're just right. going to do it by voice. Say, turn on screen, make right. trash can, move to bottom right. It'll do the coding. What you need is the creativity. And I also think it's useful to know something about the hardware. One of the first twists in your story is that you were also popular. You were not the tech nerd outsider. 
You were student body president. You were voted most likely to succeed, one of the few yeah. that actually succeed. You were also very ambitious. You interned in Washington for legendary House Majority Leader Hale Boggs. You also worked for the local newspaper, and you were in high school. Where did all that ambition come from? I think one of the driving things for me was a pretty keen sense of curiosity. I certainly wasn't smarter than the other kids I grew up with, especially at Newman, you know, your friend Michael Lewis, all these people went to. It was a school with a lot of smart people. But my dad was always curious as an engineer, and he was always taking things apart to see how they worked. And he loved telling things like, why is the sky blue? And then we'd try to figure it out. So I was lucky enough when I worked with you many, many years ago at Time Warner, we had general interest magazines like Time Magazine where I worked. And so you could be driven by curiosity about everything. One week I'd be writing music. Next week I'd be writing the medicine section. Next week I'd be writing in foreign affairs or the nation section. And so my success has not come from being a great master of any field, but by having more curiosity about more things than most people around me. How did you make all this happen, though? Yes, you were curious, but you wound up as an intern in Washington. You wound up actually writing for the local newspaper. How did that happen? As for the newspaper, this was in the days when newspapers were flourishing. So as a summer job, you know, I just went in. I didn't know the editor or publisher of the paper. But if you were willing to be a reporter, the Times-Picayune had 150 reporters. I did police headquarters, as I said. How old were you? 17, 17, you know, in high school. I know I was in high school because I remember applying to college. And I already had a whole stack of newspaper clips, including mostly crime stories, but I think by actually having a bunch of front-page newspaper clips, that seemed to impress the people who let you into college. Well, let's talk about college for a minute. You went on to Harvard, and then you were a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and in that area, geographic diversity for an Ivy League was much less than today. Why Harvard and not LSU? Harvard was Harvard. You'd heard of it, and so I went to my you know, high school guidance counselor, and she said, okay, we'll try to get you into it, And, you know, I was lucky, had the newspaper clips, but you're right. Geographic diversity, you know, people who are against affirmative action say, always remind me, we've always had affirmative action. I had affirmative action. Harvard thought it was cool to get a person from Louisiana in back then. So you hit Boston, the Ivy League. I guess it was newly co-ed about the time you went there. And there was long and honored traditions up there. How did that change your view of the world? New Orleans versus Boston and that life that you encountered. I'll tell you what ingrained in me when I went up to Boston and Harvard and then Oxford. You learn tradition. You learn to respect the past, which also comes from being a Southerner and a storyteller. You learn when you look at Harvard Yard or the quad at Oxford where I was that, oh, my goodness, you know, Dr. Johnson was in this college So it puts things in perspective, and that's why to get to when you and I started working together, I kind of went to Time Magazine. It seemed like, all right, that's an institution. I don't need to start Spy Magazine or start some new magazine. I kind of like something that has a history and a tradition. Back then, there was no such thing as a venture capitalist giving you money. Mm -hmm. If you started something, you did it with somebody else's money, MTV, we started, I have 1% of MTV and thought I was lucky. But you know, you were somebody in that category, the first wave of people I knew who said something like, why don't we start MTV? That's the downside of being the 
personality I am with a reverence for institutions and history and preservation. I don't wake up one morning and say, hey, let's start a music video and No, I want to destroy the institutions and you build them up. That's always right. the yin and yang of life. It's always good to have both sorts, especially in a friendship. In this time, you were a college student developing who you were. What did you envision doing for a living as an adult? When you got out of school, I studied philosophy for a while, both at Harvard and Oxford. And I remember going back to the greatest of all philosophy professors I ever had was John Rawls, who wrote a theory of justice. And I had done something like that at Oxford. So I went back to him and showed him my Oxford dissertation. And I said to him, I can't quite figure out what I should do. I'm thinking I might want to become an academic philosopher, but I also have a job offer to go back to the newspaper in New Orleans where I worked. Maybe I want to be a journalist. He read the paper, and then he said to me very politely, you'd make a good journalist. (laughs) And so I ended up becoming a journalist again in New Orleans. As I say, I'd done it in high school. And then at time, it was almost a placeholder. Like, okay, I'll do this, and then I'll figure out what I want to be when I grow up. But after about 40 years, I realized I kind of liked it. Yeah, I might be a journalist. Before we jump to your time after college, Narrow escapes or near-death experiences almost always have a lasting effect. You had one back then. I think it was in Ireland when you were covering. The, oh, this. yeah. Oh, yeah. I was covering for the Sunday Times of London, and I went to Belfast with a guy named David Blundy, who is no longer with us because he was killed by a sniper in Salvador. I remember we were in the Europa Hotel. The Sunday Times, as the name implies, comes out only on Sunday. And this is like a Wednesday. And David said, oh, there's going to be a mass protest down in this part of Belfast. We got to go. I said, David, it's a Wednesday. You know, it's not like we have a paper to write for. And I kept saying we should just go to the bar in the Europa and have dinner. There were a lot of other journalists there. And he said no. So he dragged me down there, and it was totally safe. I mean, there were protesters and all. And we get back to the hotel. The hotel had been bombed, including the pub on top of the hotel. And David said, this is a lesson to you. You never know where you're going to be in danger. Alas, he's the one we lost. And did that have an impact on you, to be that close to being at the wrong place at the wrong time? No, I think what had an impact on me was the adrenaline that comes from covering something amazing. There are always the people who run away from the World Trade Center and the people who run towards it. I always wanted to be there when things were happening, even if they were somewhat dangerous. I remember I'm almost looking out of the window here. You can almost see it from where we are in New Orleans. There was a Howard Johnson's with a sniper on it right down the street in City Hall. And I remember hearing about it, even though I was off duty, it was late afternoon, going down there and wanting to cover it. So I think that, you know, we each have our braveries. Mine is not very strong, but it is that curiosity that drives me to be places, even places that might not be the safest at times. Just hold on a second, because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Walter Isaacson. So after school, you came back to New Orleans. You went to work for the newspaper and through a mixture of right place, right time, and great talent, you get hired by Time Magazine at a really young age. This, by the way, was when Time was absolutely one of the top news organizations in the world. Why did they pick you? You know, this is really the golden days of journalism, and I guess it was the late 80s. They had sent a senior editor around America to find talent out there. Geographic diversity. Into geographic diversity. They were recruiting. Time magazine was growing. It wanted young people from around the country. I had been covering City Hall by that point in New Orleans and had written columns about the mayor's race, had called the race, and so they would, paper had been touting me a bit, and this editor of Time arrived. And hears about me, takes me to lunch, and I got offered three jobs that week, as a matter of fact. One was Time Magazine. The other was a guy named Rick Tonry, who had just been elected to Congress, wanted me to go up as his administrative assistant. And the third, rather weirdly, was a guy named Cord Meyer. Remember who he was? No. Cord Meyer was a famous CIA agent, ran counterintelligence in the CIA. He had been in the London embassy, and he had met lots of kids from Oxford. We never quite figured out why did Cord Meyer want to meet us all. 
But one day I got a call saying Cord Myers in New Orleans wants to meet you at the Hilton Hotel next to the airport. I thought, that's weird. I met with him, and he wanted to recruit me for the CIA. He made one mistake, though. He said, of course, we wouldn't want you to be a double agent or a spy. We'd want you to be an analyst at Langley, thinking that would make it more appealing. And I thought, well, that's boring, boring, and I accepted the job at time. So you show up in New York, and you've come from the times Picayune. you're now at Time. What was the difference in journalism? What sort of struck you, that first impression of this is different? The writing was done as a group. In other words, you had correspondents who would send in things. There'd be a writer who would compile it. So it was all done as a collaborative, collegial thing. Time didn't even have bylines back then. And I like that notion of teamwork. It made it feel very magical and distilling huge amounts of wisdom. The other thing that struck me immediately was the power of this institution of time. If I wanted to meet Garth Brooks because I heard he was an up-and-coming country star, you'd just call some publisher or whatever, and you'd be having, and that was true of Ronald Reagan. It was heady, and for somebody whose adrenaline fix comes from curiosity, it was just like a kid in the candy store. I think I remember you telling me once, we were talking about impartiality and how important that was. It was you or someone else said it's so important they didn't even vote. Yeah. The entire time I was at Time Magazine or CNN, I never voted in an election that we might cover, presidential race or even a Senate race. I sometimes voted like whatever, city council yeah, of course. where it mattered or I knew somebody running. And the reason was if you voted, you had to force yourself to figure out which side are you on. If you knew you weren't going to vote, you didn't join a side as easily and you really could keep an open mind better because you hadn't pushed yourself to decide, who am I going to vote for? That stuck with me all these years. These days, people would think it's ridiculous to be that way. And they'll say, oh, you can't be objective. Well, yeah, you can try. You can try real hard. I remember one of the first cover stories I wrote at Time was about abortion. One of the big marches, you know, Right to Life march. And I wrote a cover story on abortion in which I tried to be one hand, other, different hands, many hands. This is what people are saying the whole march. And I got, and I still have it. I've treasured it, even though it was a tough letter, from Walker Percy, the novelist, who was a deep practicing Catholic, very against abortion, and felt that I had betrayed the fact that I was pro-choice, even though I tried to be objective and even-handed. And he just pointed out passages in this cover story in which it was clear I didn't fully understand the anti-abortion side as well. But I do think there's still, for me, a hunger for here's a journalist who's not trying to get in the way of wherever the facts lead him. You were one of the first to cover technology, and you became one of the leading experts on it. You got Time, Inc. and Time Warner into this new world as the head of Pathfinder. When I arrived at America Online in the mid-90s, 95, 96, you were the only major media company in this space. Why? I remember once I was editor and we wanted to do a story of on the world of online. It was before you had really pushed AOL to be what it was. I tried to understand cyberspace. What was this? And I guess it was just because I was interested in engineering. I was interested in the network. Back then it was the well. What's an email account? I had an email account at the well. Oh. And Stuart Brand had helped create it, and it said, you own your own words, which I tell my students now because 
That's what it said when the screen opened up, and it meant you had to take responsibility for what you said, unlike nowadays on Twitter or right. you know many other places. So I became mesmerized by this online world, and that's how I met you, that's how I met Steve Case, that's how I met Ted Leontis back then. Time Magazine in 91, I think, was the first publication outlet to go online. And, we and it was it. online, not the internet back then. It's not until the Gore Act of 1992 that you have .com, that it's open to the public. Up until 93, when the Gore Act goes into effect, it was limited to research. Mark Andreessen writes the browser and it becomes easy. And, oh, by the way, our board meetings back at AOL in those days were, should we embrace the internet or should we fight it? Our meetings at time were, should we embrace the internet or should we fight it? Right. You did a great job stewarding AOL. So what did the Pathfinder success and failures teach you and teach the company about the new digital world? I think we embraced it very fast. One mistake we and everybody made in 93, 94, 95, when the web comes along and we move from proprietary online to having websites, Pathfinder right. and Roadrunner. My childhood nickname in New Orleans was Pathfinder. Really? That's why we named it that. And Roadrunner was a Warner Brothers yes, character. So those were the two services we created. We decided it was going to be like everything Time Magazine did. You could subscribe and pay money. You could get it by the drink, you know, buy by the drink, we'd call it, meaning newsstand sales. You could just buy an issue for a dollar. And we had advertising revenue. So we'd have three revenue streams. And then we blew it because people were coming from Madison Avenue almost carrying sacks of cash, wanting to buy advertising, banner ads. And so we said, well, let's make all the content free so we'll have more eyeballs to sell to advertisers. That was a doomed business model. By the way, it's turned out for AOL, too. When they dropped subscriptions and they went free, was sort of the demise. Our founder, Henry Luce, he said in his prospectus, any magazine that only has advertising revenue and doesn't have subscriber revenue, that's not only economically self-defeating, it's morally abhorrent. <laughs> now, having known about Henry Luce, I think the economically self-defeating was the more important yes, part I agree, to him. Yeah. But he realized that the controlled circ magazines, you'd call it, right. you become beholden to advertisers but not beholden to readers. You lose your focus. If the Walter Isaacson of 1997 could see the world today, what would be the biggest surprise? Mobile. I remember early cell phones because I was on the road. And the amazing thing to be able to be somewhere and be able to call. On, I'm calling you on the phone. Yeah, on a cell phone. And this is why I think Steve Jobs is the most transformative leader of our day and generation. I didn't realize the notion that we could all be connected at all times on our mobile devices and have GPS and that could help create Ubers and Lyfts and, for that matter, Airbnbs. So in 2001... I convinced you to go run CNN as chairman and CEO. Yeah. What skills did you bring to that, and how do you envision CNN's future? And before we get to that, I do want to give you this credit, which I suspect you don't often get, but you know the little ticker along the bottom of the yeah. news services? Yeah. That was you. Scroll, we called it. I mean, it's a sad thing, but after 9-11, to keep the news up, We had up, so you, much news, we wanted people to be able to read it. Other news networks Soon copied it, but that was sort of your lasting legacy because it's still here today. (laughs) Well, I guess. I just wasn't really suited to run CNN. I was not a TV person. 
So when I was at Time Magazine and we wanted to do a layout and I wanted a picture to be a certain way, they said, well, you can't do that. I said, yeah, you can. Just crop it here and run it over the gutter and bleed it on the sides. I knew what I was doing. I didn't have that fingertip feel for television. Right after I came, 9-11 happened. Right. And I did have the passion, the curiosity, wanting to know everything, wanting to know about Al-Qaeda, wanting to know about the whole Sunni-Shia divide, getting Christian Amanpour and Nick Robertson. So I had a driving editorial curiosity. There are a couple of things you learn at a certain point in life that you wish you'd learned earlier. I am very good at content and ideas. I am not a great manager or executive. I've watched you because you were the co-president, I think, of this entire empire of AOL Time Warner, of which I reported up to you. You really knew how to manage and run a big enterprise. I was not as crisp as a executive or somebody could run an enterprise. I was like overwhelmed every day by the thousands of management things. And then after the war and after my contract was up, it was like, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life as a manager. There are people really good at this. People can be great CEOs and chief operating officers. I'd rather make the content and have somebody have to manage me than have to manage a whole lot of content. Creators. Although I must say, having you at the top of CNN gave everybody in New York great comfort that we were not going to lose the journalistic standards. And if you recall that moment in time, there was a real danger of that. And yeah, and that's when Fox and then MSNBC were coming up. At least with 9-11, it was absolutely clear that we had to just report this straight down the middle. But even then, it became Fox is running flags all over their thing, and we're not putting the American flag up enough. And it was always, okay, we have to figure out and wrestle with the partisan thing, not just right. getting the story right. I think CNN has great people. I still love Wolf Blitzer and all the people there. I do think that there is a hunger for a network that just says, let me report it. I think we've become too opinionated in cable news. If you talk to people, and obviously we do in our business because mm -hmm. we do a lot of news and opinion on all sides, yeah. I think what is missing is... Let me give you all the information you need to make a good decision. Let me lower your blood pressure instead of elevating your blood pressure. Most of TV today is if I elevate your blood pressure, I get more response, I get more passion, I get a better rating. I think the algorithms of the digital age, and especially of social media, but also the ratings on digital media and television, reward what they euphemistically call engagement, meaning you retweet, you put a little likes. It shouldn't be called just engagement, it's enragement. Because if you enrage people with something, they're more likely to say, can you believe this or respond to it, retweet it, or stay tuned. I'm watching in the gym today, Fox and MSNBC and CNN, and they're not trying to parse it and enlighten, they're trying to stoke you up. Get your blood pressure up. Right, that's why I go to the swimming pool, because there's no TV in the pool. From the wise men to Leonardo da Vinci, including Steve Jobs in between, you've studied great, successful people. Were these people also great at marketing their ideas and themselves? Was that part of the success? Well, I mean, obviously, Steve was well, the greatest marketer of our, of our generation. He was a marketer, not just because he can make an Apple ad like, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, or do the 1984 ad, which introduces the Macintosh. His marketing was things like, I will get the perfect color slate for the floor right. of this store, and I will have beautiful 
big panes of glass, and I want this type of wood, and I want you to feel this way when you walk in. All the Apple store is is just the greatest piece of marketing. Steve, when he was building that Apple store, his first one, he first wanted it to be in the Time Warner Center, which was just going up, and they didn't want a computer store there, and they told him no. So he called me and said, I need you to see if you could get the store. So in typical Steve fashion, I use every favor I've got. We call it in and finally say, okay, we'll put in an Apple store. And he goes, never mind, I have another idea. Before Steve died, one of his last things was, I want those glass panes. There are too many of them. I think there were like 12 on the side. And so he said, I wanted to be three. And we're making them build clays in China who can make the glass that big. And when it opened a few weeks ago and I went to see it, I got tears. In my, I got choked up saying, you know, nobody knows this. That weird passion for perfection is why the reopening of the Apple store. Right. You know, Ben Franklin also was a marketer. I mean, what I love about him is when he comes to Philadelphia and he opens a media company, meaning he's a printer, publisher, poor Richard's almanac, even postal service. He likes the distribution. He takes the rolls of paper he needs and puts them in a wheelbarrow and marches up and down the street because he wants people to see how early in the morning he's up and how industrious he is. And even as an old man in Paris, he's marketing the United States. He's wearing a coonskin coat and a fur hat, which, you right. know, he had never been off of Market Street in Philadelphia or Craven Street in London, but he wants to be the backwoodsman. And Leonardo was the master at it, too. I mean, the best piece of marketing for who you are, what you do, and what you look like and how you fit in is Vitruvian Man, that Leonardo drawing of the nude guy doing the jumping jacks in the circle in the square. It's a self-portrait, and it's almost Leonardo saying, here's our essence. So they all have a mission, and they all had a purpose which drove them. They had a couple things. The mission was that they were curious about everything, which is, I say, why it reflects my own curiosity, and they loved to stand at the intersection of the arts and sciences. When Steve Jobs launched a product, the last slide on the screen would always be street signs of the arts and technology. He said, you stand at that intersection, that's where creativity occurs. And he's the one who said the ultimate in doing that was Leonardo da Vinci. Because Leonardo is an engineer as much as he's an artist. He calls himself the engineer and artist to the Duke of Milan. And that's when he draws Vitruvian Man, which is not just a work of art, it's a work of engineering and spirituality. What life lessons do you see emerging from an examination of these greats? I think that you should try to stand at the intersection of many disciplines, that people who can see across disciplines see the patterns of nature and tend to be more creative. That is not just about the engineering, but it's about the beauty. Steve Jobs taught us a simple two-word lesson, which is beauty matters. And he did it because he took calligraphy and dance and art and poetry at Reed Whereas Bill Gates, who's a much smarter, you know, greater computer scientist, only took applied math. So I think that lesson is to love the arts and the sciences. When you ran the Aspen Institute, you created the now iconic Aspen Ideas Festival. What was the motivation for that? Part of it was in the digital age, we were all getting our ideas electronically. We were all part of communities, but they were virtual. We all had Facebook friends, and we all debated things on Twitter and I felt a hunger and a need that people should get together every now and then, that the blood pressure lowers a bit and the hair quits going on fire. When you're sitting in a room, and it may be Dick Cheney there and you know John Kerry or something, 
but you're listening to people in the flesh. I think that's one of the things we had lost in the digital age. Also, we had lost that ability to just be open-minded and curious. The Ideas Festival was just that. Let me tell you about CRISPR gene editing technology, but also about how France is dealing with labor issues or whether the universe is expanding or what type of tax might be, you know, Elizabeth Warren's new idea. And so it's for people who just wanted to hear ideas, and I think there's a hunger for that as well. That's what podcasts are. Well, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, you've seen a squelching of dissenting opinions. Mm -hmm. No matter where you are, it's almost as if people don't want to hear the other opinion and study them. In Aspen Institute, you brought people together who were often polar opposites, and you managed to get them together. Is this lost to us forever? Are we going through just no, a phase? No, we're going through a phase. We're going through a really bad phase, and it's getting worse and worse. I mean, we never used to have it where the parties were deeply polarized on pure ideological lines. It used to be you could have liberal Republicans, and you got conservative Democrats, and people put together civil rights bills by getting coalitions. We've become much more polarized. And it's partly our media, because we each go to our end of the talk radio dial to be yelled at by our favorite talk radio host, or we go to our cable news station that we like the most, or we find parts of the blogosphere where we get our opinions reinforced. And so that's why having people together face-to-face often allows you to get out of that bubble that you're allowed to be in in the virtual world. Do you think there are other forums emerging to pull opinions together? as opposed to shut them off? No, I think that's what we're lacking right now. I tell my students at Tulane, Zuckerberg invented Facebook to connect us, to make us all understand each other better and to be connected. And likewise, Twitter was supposed to do that and some of the other ones. They failed miserably. In the end, the algorithms incented people to get into their own corners and share enraged information to each other. And that's why I think social media has ended up being more polarizing than connecting. And I say to my students, okay, why? Is it the anonymity that does it? Is it the algorithm said, oh, you just said this, you might like following Hugh Hewitt, or you might like Bob Pittman's podcast, in which the algorithms almost push you to hear more of what you apparently like. And so my final challenge to them at the end of the course, which is a course on the digital revolution, is how would you invent a social network that actually healed and brought us together as opposed to divide us the way social networks do now. So what would history suggest is going to happen to pull us back together, or does this keep going? Einstein once said when he watched the McCarthy era happen, in which people like his friend J. Robert Oppenheimer were being accused of being communist, he said, I've seen this before. I saw it when the Nazis took over in Germany. I saw it when the communists took over. America's about to go off the cliff. And then... Edward R. Murrow, Dwight Eisenhower, a whole lot of people knock McCarthy off the stage. And Einstein writes to his son, you know, America's democracy has a weird gyroscope in it. When you think it's going to fall over, it writes itself. So I think it will take people like the Edward R. Murrows and the Dwight Eisenhowers to say, I'm not just there to win my primary or to win ratings, but I'm there playing for history. In the end, the enemy is us, meaning... Unless we as people, as a nation, want high-value information and want to be open-minded, then the people who are our politicians and our media stars, they're not going to be that way. We'll get them 
media and we'll get the politicians we deserve. So we all have to wake up each morning and say, what can I do to be just a little bit more embraceive, a little bit more tolerant to help bring people together? I think it's starting at a community level. I moved out of Washington three or four years ago. I said, man, this divisiveness is getting brutal. Our country will build back its civic spirit from the bottom up, meaning city by city, town by town, which is why I moved back here and have tried to get involved in the politics here. One more scary topic. Is tech destroying more jobs than it's creating? No, tech never has done that. Ever since Ada Lovelace came up with the first computer algorithm, her father was Lord Byron, who was a Luddite, literally, because his only speech in the House of Lords was defending the followers of Ned Ludd, who thought that the weaving machines using punch cards that made these patterns would put weavers out of work, and therefore they were smashing the mechanical looms. They were wrong. The mechanical looms do fine. There's about a hundred times greater number of jobs in the fashion and textile industry at the beginning of 1900 than there were in 1840 when Ludd was smashing them. I think technology increases productivity by definition, and if you increase productivity, you'll have more demand for more things. Who would have thought there would be a demand for podcasts? We did not know, when you asked me to go back to 1997, that there would be a demand for people to make services that you could do on mobile phones, and people would say, okay, I'm going to make a food delivery service, or I'm going to make a car service or I'm going to make a share-your-house service. These are the jobs we didn't know would exist, and I'm clueless about what jobs are going to be there 20 years from now. But I tell my students, don't worry, there will be new jobs, and it will go to the people who are creative and open-minded and curious, not just people who've just learned how to code. Let's go to Walter today. How's the life of a college professor? It's good. I mean, I love Tulane because the students are not the way you said many students are on campus where they get closed-minded and they're always furious about something. The students at Tulane seem to have a earnest curiosity. So I love that part of it. I love being involved in the community. We end each episode with our shout-outs to the people who have made a contribution to marketing on the math side and the creative side. You've studied and met the best. Who is the greatest analytics person, the math side of marketing and business? I think Bill Gates truly understood that software would rule and was able, when he created the original DOS operating system, to make the hardware manufacturers use it, but then he would study how it was being used. Because nothing, with all due respect to Microsoft, that they make it first. The 1.0s are never very good, but he really is good at gathering data and improving the product. So who is the greatest creative, the magician? I know the Steve Jobs. Of course, has to of be. Of course. And the interesting thing is he and Bill Gates are both born the same, you know, 1955. They're like twin stars in the universe. They're captured by each other's gravitational field. And one was the most creative and one was the most analytic person. And by spinning together, they create the computer revolution. Perfect for math and magic. Walter, you've got a perspective no one does. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you, Bob. Here are a few things I picked up from my conversation with Walter. One, while Walter thinks it's useful to learn to code, he believes it's more useful to learn to think creatively and conceptually. That's one skill, as he puts it, that will always be in demand. Two, Walter's a big proponent of multiple revenue streams. Being too focused on ad revenue can make you lose touch with your consumers. 
Three, talented creatives don't always make the best executives. While Walter was a remarkable executive, he says he would rather have a smart manager manage him so he can stick to doing what he truly thinks he's good at. Four, be curious. In a field like journalism, Walter says curiosity is more important than mastering any one skill. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.